Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, I will finish up looking at the second volume of the Selected Letters. Uh, the first volume, as I've mentioned before, is not available to me, so I haven't been, wasn't able to go through it letter by letter. I was able to give broad ideas based on some notes I took from it. Uh, that'll be the same with volume five, unless I can get a hold of it. Um, but yeah, we're coming to the end of this, so uh, it's not going to be the end of our exploration into Lovecraft's nonfiction writing from the later 1920s. We also got to read supernatural horror and literature, uh, maybe some other things uh, that I might find, some other writings. He didn't do as much amateur journalism at this time, so um, so definitely a supernatural horror and literature. I might spend a couple episodes on that next time or over the next few episodes, and then. Uh, some poetry. You have to go back to some of Lovecraft's poetry, maybe some other essays. Uh, I'll have to do a, make up a quick bibliography of what Lovecraft wrote. Um, so as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, there's this, these final 20 letters are, are 100 pages, four pages per letter. You say that's not much, but a lot of these letters, you know, we only would get a few pages. The reason for this, or sometimes just a fragment, right? Of, of a larger letter. The reason for this is a couple of these letters are really, really long. And that's, um, that's fine. They're interesting. The long letters are great. Uh, when you get to, when you read like the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft letter, some of them go on for 30, 40 pages and they're wonderful. Uh, so rich. Um, now specifically, these letters cover the period January, 1929 to June, 1929. Uh, the, the previous episode did all of 1928, but, uh, this will just cover the first half of 1929, and then we'll pick this up again uh, in July of 1929 in the third volume of the Selected Letters, sometime much later. Sorry about that, my, my phone beeped. Uh, all right, uh, the very first letter we have here is to James Morton. Uh, actually, this one's to say December, so I take that back. This is December 28 to June 29. Uh, so this first one is, is actually from December. Uh, to James Morton, and this one it's it's talks a little bit about uh, class and appreciation of nature, which is something that's bizarre, I guess, to to, to think that it's a class issue. Um, but it's Lovecraft. What do you expect? Uh, he writes. Do you recall that I promised that excellent fellow to tell him what I what I was when you found out? I hate to fail in the duties of an indulgent county squire. Intelligent curiosity is so rare a virtue in the peasantry that it ought to be encouraged whenever it does not lead to general to lead to inter insurrection. It's one's duty is to bring one's honest tenantry closer to the great heart of nature. End quote. I mean, that's a bit weird way to talk about class. I, I mean, I don't believe that farmers have some special relationship to the land, right? I, I think you know how many farmers are ecologists. There are some people in permaculture, homesteaders often are, but a lot of farmers, you know, they're not really ecologists. They're not interested in ecology. Actually, ecology is on my mind because I'm starting the, Love, the Leopold series, Aldo Leopold series, on my main podcast uh, around the same time as I'm recording this. But at the same time, this idea that it's the job of the landlords and the elite to educate the peasants in how to appreciate nature, really bizarre stuff. I, I don't know what to make of it, really, except that his classism is obviously quite strong and, and it never really goes away. And it's just part of dealing with, with Lovecraft. 
All right. Uh, next, we got a letter January 1929 to Maurice Moe. Maurice Moe, longtime correspondent of, of Lovecraft's. Um, so what do we have here? Well, he reprints a Christmas poem he wrote uh, to, to Long, an epistle to Francis L.D. Belknap with a volume of proofs presented to him by his aged grandshire, Louis Theobald. That's the name of himself. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice little Christmas poem uh, that he wrote for him, and he just gives it to this other friend, Maurice Moe, to comment on. I'm not going to break this down. Maybe I'll do it when we do the letter, the, the poems. What is here uh, now he also gives him a little bit of philosophy um, here especially his philosophy of literature and he talks about what role does vulgar language have in literature um, and he actually talks about the the tendency of of writers to use that to they abbreviate the swear words i don't know if you've read older like 19th century works you see it in poe for instance like locations Sometimes names and often like swear words will be edited out and they don't like black it out. They, they just have the first and last letter and a dash between the two, right? You've probably seen that before. Um, and Lovecraft says of this, I'm for it. Well, let's, let's go back a sentence because it's, it's, it's important. A certain amount of the emphasis naively classified as profanity is normal under many conditions. And has always characterized the speech of virile men in every class of society, except during the brief force of Victorian repression. I am for it, for its attempt to total deletion was a mere grotesque gesture unwarranted in the history of our language and culture. Nothing is more cursely sissified than a magazine which prints D-N with blanks or a six-foot milk sucker who's afraid to say, oh, hell, and stag company, end quote. So on this, Lovecraft's absolutely right. It's just stilly to edit out the language that's actually spoken when you're writing literature. Right now, Lovecraft's not a big swearer in his literature. He's not known for that. That's not his thing, really. But I think he's absolutely right that that this kind of feeling that the reader is going to be too sensitive to handle a swear word, when, and when you're in a situation where people would swear, that's the most offensive part. But and he thinks it's only the Victorians that really kind of messed this up. That's probably true too. Um, next, uh, of interesting letter, although short, uh, dated January 15th to Wilfred Blanche Tallman. Um, it's a little, he actually goes back. He can't leave New York year, years later now from his time in New York. Can't fully leave it because he kind of returns to Red Hook and talks about the people there talks about the kinds of people there and the smells and the scents and all this the stuff he was really obsessed about when he thinks about new york it's like the feel the sensory imagery of red hook right um and it's what he comes back to it here And it comes up in a, well, he, he writes this to Tolman. Welcome back to the land of living. I wasn't quite sure whether your body would be found floating in a hidden Red Hook Canal or whether there would be tales of your footprints leading up to some ancient Dutch tomb and not leading away again. Glad you still find the old Hook habitable, but you must have a mercifully selected vision and audition. I think that the Homa was there during my exile. And this gives, then he branches into his, his general, you know, predictable rant about about red hook 
He also talks about Loveman's visit to New England. And, you know, whenever these people come up north, they visit Lovecraft, his friends, and he and Lovecraft's encouraging Tallman to do the same. Um, so, kind of an important letter on again the New York experience, and we we see throughout this whole volume of letters, New York is never far from Lovecraft's mind. Thankfully, it sort of goes away. I think in the 1930s, he, Lovecraft seemed to finally get over having spent a few months in New York. Um, but you know, whatever. Uh, next letter, Francis Wright. Francis Worth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales. Uh, February 15th, 1929. Um, this is mostly he's writing about financial issues, um, business stuff the rights to his stories, that kind of stuff. So again, I, I do think the editors, they were trying to do different things. And that's why I appreciate the selected letters is they, they realized people would go to these letters for different reasons. So those who are more interested in his biography, what his, his trips, they have those, that story is being told. The story of his writing and his business and his publications, that's being told. The story of his politics is being told. So all these different threads are, are told. In fact, another way to go at these letters would be to literally break it up into those different stories, right? But, but I'll let that, that be the job of the scholars. Uh, but this letter, not much to say about it from my point of view, but mostly business about the rights of his stories. Uh, next, I think this is the, the long letter. This is one of the super long letters. Um, yes, 13 pages. Uh, to Frank Belknap Long, February 20, 1929. So these long letters, usually you want to go to them and read them because there's going to be something good in them. Um, and this is a case where he's able to kind of start in one place. It's a good example of how what he could do in the long letters is he would start in one place and, and really f create a thread of logic that would end up in some places somewhere else, but but you end up with a consistent argument, right? It's like a like a good philosopher might do. Now, he's not a great philosopher, uh, I don't think, but he sometimes, went at his best in these letters, writes as a good philosopher in that he's able to create this kind of concrete worldview and connect various things to it. And, and, and I, I think this is a good example of that. He starts out by talking about man's place in the cosmos, the unknowability of our own purpose and, and our place in the world, and ultimately the lack of having any real purpose in the world. Um, now, then he moves into a discussion of new science. And the problem here being that new science itself uh, promised in a way to maybe undermine strict materialism, but doesn't. It's we're still stuck, even with all the new science, with quantum mechanics, with general relativity, with Heisenberg and, and Einstein and all those people, we're still essentially in uh, a strictly materialistic world. He writes, for instance, uh, if I can find exactly where it is. Um, so he says, there's scarcely less idiocy in the pitiful wine of the modern supernatural dupe that the discovery of the identity of matter and energy breaks down 18th century materialism and reopens the way for mystical myth-making. So he's talking about people who see in new science the potential to revive the supernatural. Lovecraft says, nope. Uh, 
Nothing could be more contrary to the fact, he writes, the collapse of cosmic dimensions supplies no iota of evidence or suggestion either for or against materialistic reason. Whilst the elimination of matter as a separate entity is simply a step towards unification of all being and the consequent destruction of the myth that worker separate from work or goals separate from present position. Um, so he says, ultimately, this just reinforces materialism. Um, now, a problem with science, of course, and this goes to the origins of science, to break in to uh, Descartes, is the problem of human perception, right? And that's something, of course, Lovecraft talks a lot about. And this is something that new science definitely confirms, right? And it's not that it takes away from materialism, but definitely, the, I think what Lovecraft brings out of new science is human perceptions are limited, whether it's evolution, that's going back to Darwin, but this idea like time, like we can't conceive of millions of years or billions of years very easily. And, and those who, very, very few of us can, uh, even if we understand it intellectually, it's hard to kind of imagine, you know, how long, you know, it takes for, for evolution to unfold. Geological time even deeper, right? Even longer. Uh, and then of course, with new science, you can't perceive the quantum realm. You can't, you know, what we think, how we understand the world, it doesn't work. This is something Lovecraft, of course, really was able to grab onto in his cosmic horror, because then you just put a god there, you put some monster, you put some entity, some phenomenon out there that's beyond our perception. Right? Uh, infinity simply cannot be seen, right? Which he, he repeats something along this line several times too, too long. So this is a great, all in all, this is a really, really great summary of Lovecraft's philosophy of science and his and, and and how that connects to cosmic horror as he writes it um now he goes on for quite a way about this uh looking at different aspects of it and applied it in different ways especially attacking the spiritualists and the, the hippy dippy types and the boo boo types which is all fun and great um now he you know later in the letter he then kind of returns to this question of, or he doesn't really, it's not really returning, but he introduces the question. He's, I mean, he returns it in the sense he wrote in different letters to Long about this, but in the context of this letter, he, he introduces the question of myth and religion, right? Now, he, he's got like the spiritualist, which he doesn't take it seriously, but he takes myths certainly, certainly seriously. And he takes religion seriously because they're based on those deep traditions. It's not a new fad. It's not a, a silly thing that people just are grabbing onto. And he believes myth and religion are efforts to solve the unknown, right? I think most of us would agree, unless we're true believers in some religion, that really the reason we have so much myth and religion out there in the world is because people really struggled to, to understand the world. Um, now, 19th century science, of course, leads to the, the death of God. Now, where does this leave us, right? I think Lovecraft's answer to where this leaves us is something like it, it leaves us in a sense worse off right that you want to have that cultural foundation that's probably going to be in religion and myth if you don't have that you're kind of lost right and we see that again and again this is, goes to his views about immigration his views about culture and keeping cultural integrity intact um but now we got the death of god science kind of leads to the death of god and where, where does this put the religious worldview and their, their beliefs? 
and those who hold on to religious belief. And he gives A through N. He gives all these different reasons that people still hold on to religion. He writes, But even this herd has felt an emotional letdown, more of an emotional letdown than the most open of intellectual aesthetics, or so most intellectual atheists, so that they are increasingly vulgar, swinish, and unmanageable. They don't figure in an intellectual emotional problem, nor do consciously insincere people of any grade. But how about the residual believers in taste, information, and cultivation? Um, I believe their causes are as follows. So he separates between kind of the vulgar people who just hold on to religion because they're stupid and have nothing else to do, and people who really, you know, like the more cultured, I guess, believer. It's not a very good, it's not a very useful distinction, I guess, to me. But Lovecraft, classist, as always, makes these distinctions. Um, and he goes in their beliefs. And I'll just mention a few of these. One, wish thinking. Right? Habit of tradition. I think Lovecraft understands that one. Um, oversensitivity to abstract principles of authority. Emotional bias. Aesthetic bias. Right? Like, he thinks a lot of Catholics have an aesthetic bias. That's why they believe it's just they, they like the art or the feeling or the liturgy or whatever. I have to say, I like the liturgy. I, I was raised Lutheran, so I always kind of dug the liturgy. Lutherans are one of those Protestant groups that, that held on to the liturgy. Uh, other things he mentions, big passionate good, good group feeling, overdeveloped reverence, introversion. Right. So, yeah, this is a great essay really about cosmic horror about man's place in the cosmos new science and the survival of religion um and i think there's a lot we can learn from this letter i think it's a good one and it's not weighed down with his racism it's not weighed down with his more toxic views it's just a really thoughtful guy working through the consequences of 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 changing science now, I wish you would do this a little bit more with modernism, with liter like be as reflective about literary moder moder modernism. He's so, uh, I guess, judgmental of literary modernism when he writes about it, stream of consciousness, Joyce, whatever. And I don't know why that is. Like, he's not this way about new science. He just says this is maybe because with science, it's just this is what the evidence shows and literary modernism, he thinks people are just experimenting for the sake of experimenting and in a sense, ruining art, right? So maybe, I don't know. But I think there's some truth in what the modernists tried to do uh, in music and art and literature. Um, now, there's also a little bit in this letter where he talks about introversion and extroversion and how Lovecraft himself personally prefers the ex introverts. I'm an introvert and I prefer the extroverts. I, that's why I, I like to go to bars. I, I'm like... Not the most social person, but I like talking to social people. I like being around people who are a little more outgoing. It's weird. So I'm, I'm like a introvert who likes parties. All right. Good letter. Next, we have another long one. This one is another 12, 13-page letter to Ms. Elizabeth Tolbridge, dated February 21st, 1929. So this, this letter, if I were to describe it, it's a little bit about literature, but ultimately it's going to be about mechanical invention and the impact of mechanization on 
on human beings. Um, so again, it's a long letter. We have a lot of it here, so it's 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 going to go different places. This one goes to more places than I think the, the previous uh, long letter does. That one was a little bit more focused on this question of religion. Um, but this one, this one goes a few more places, but it's this important one for laying out his obsession about me mechanical culture, which is going to be increasingly a big part of what he thinks about in the 1930s. Um, so he starts out talking about some various works by the gang, the writers that he's associated with, his epistolatory uh, companions. Um, he also talks a little bit about the origin of horror fiction as he, as the letter, as he gets into the letter a little bit. And of course, he's an expert on this. He wrote that essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, which, you know, of course, allowed him to fully investigate and study and, and write down the, this origin. Um, and he ties it to his, the gang. Um, then he jumps to the Celtic influence on English culture, which is something that's been in the back of his mind for a while. Uh, we've seen evidence of this in other letters, even in his own family heritage, where he's kind of found some Celtic influence in his own Anglo-Saxon family, right? The relationship between the Anglo-Saxon and the Celts, of course, is deep and important in English history. And you'd have to be pretty stupid to think that it's just the Anglo-Saxons came and, and kind of pushed the Celts away and then English culture developed without this Celtic influence, right? Even, even someone like Lovecraft has to acknowledge there's this Celtic influence on English culture. Uh, so that's an important thing. And I think we see his ideas on civilizations maturing a little bit uh, as we get into the late 1920s and 1930s. And I think that's all for the better because uh, those are some of the more odious and annoying aspects of what Lovecraft, how Lovecraft thinks. He never totally gets away from it, but he's, he's slightly better. Now, where this gets interesting, this letter gets interesting, when he begins to talk about mechanical invention and how mechanical invention changes humans' relationship to nature, and we end up losing a connection to actual life. In fact, I just came across this in something that Aldo Leopold said in San Coney Almanac, where he says, you know, like, how we've kind of lost our connection to breakfast, we lost our connection to the trees, to, to where we get our energy from, our heat from. And, and he thinks that's a bad thing. And I think Lovecraft on some level, I don't think he wants to cut down trees though or, or cunt his own breakfast, but he realizes mechanical you know, mechanization, mechanical civilization has changed how we relate to nature. We don't have our own kind of, we don't have whatever our actual life is, what we evolved to be is not who we are. And I, I think that's easy to see as, as essentially true. So he writes, uh, for instance, mechanical invention has, for better or for worse, permanently altered mankind's relationship to a setting and to forces of gen nature generally, and has just inevitably begun to produce a new type of organization among his own numbers as a result of changes, modes of housing, transportation, manufacture, agriculture, commerce, and economic adjustment. Our familiar bases of intellectual and emotional reliance are suddenly removed from the sphere of actual life and relegated to the domain of tradition and the aesthetic only. Lucky is he whose temperament and opportunities permit him to live largely in historic imagination. So this is where Lovecraft can kind of say, see, I'm, I'm the one who sort of can survive this because I have this aesthetic connection to the past. And most people don't. And we can't go back. He, as, I, as I said, I don't think he wants to hunt his own breakfast. 
or even go back to the 18th century in a material way, but he can go back aesthetically, right? And most people can't. And that, that allows him to survive. I think he's arguing in a way that, that, that puts him in a, in a position of, of advantage, I guess. Um, but, you know, that's, tradition survives in art. That's essentially what he says here. Um, then, then that kind of wraps up most of the interesting stuff in this letter. He, he, then he talks a little bit about going to Rome for his own ancestors, which we've seen him do before, and we've seen him kind of wrestle with this when he talked about the Roman, with that Roman dream he had, that, that bizarre dream he had, as a, that where he dreamed he was a Roman. Um, and we get a little bit more of his family history here, which we've already seen. So this letter, long, but it's not nearly as long as the letter that's going to be next. And not nearly as, as rich. Um, the next letter is Mr. Harris. It's a 30-page letter. The text here is 30 pages, typed. And, and this is edited, of course. So there are parts of this letter that are, are obviously missing. Right? Um, sometimes he talks about how, how long the letter is in manuscript form on the top of in the letter. Like, oh, this 40-page this letter took me so long to write. I don't think we get that here. But... Boy, this is a long letter. Now, this Mr. Harris, he writes a handful of letters to, and they're all long. Okay, so this Harris, his name is Woodburn Prescott Harris. And I, I don't think we know that much about him. He's kind of a mysterious figure. Like, he's... Now, if this is the same guy, Ancestry.com has him born in Vermont, born in 1888, dying in 1988. So he died when he was 100 years old. Um, I think he's most well known as being, you know, of writing Lovecraft. Now, there's a blog entry um, in uh, an H.P. Lovecraft blog called Technali. That's the name of the blog. Um, it's, the article is called The Mysterious Pink Letters of Woodburn Prescott Harris. It says, Woodburn Prescott Harris was a Lovecraft correspondent circa 1929 of whom little is known. Only three letters to Woodburn Harris survive, but one is a gargantuan 70 pages. I don't know if that's this one or one we'll see in the next series. Harris was an English and drama teacher, surprisingly, seemingly a Shakespearean specialist who married in the 1920s. Um, so now they talk about the reason these are called the mysterious pink letters is they seem to be talking a little bit about communism in some of these letters, too. Um, so, anyways, go look at this. Uh, go look at this blog post. I'm just going to tell you what's in this letter. Um, as best I can. I didn't even take notes. Normally, I take notes on a piece of paper. I didn't even do that here because I just took I took marginal notes. Hopefully, that's going to be enough. Because this is about the machine age too. This article maybe is the opening salvo in what's going to be a seven, and pretty much for the rest of Lovecraft's life, an a, a argument, a conversation, a, a rack grappling with machine age, pro, the problems of the machine age in terms of literature, in terms of culture. In terms of 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 literature he's kind of we've kind of had the early rumblings of this battle but this 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 article is like a like a opening salvo of a, of a 
of what's going to be the rest of his lifelong obsession for for Lovecraft. <clears throat> and he comes out swinging, quote, barring plumbing and electric lights, I fancy I shun the newfangled contraptions of the machine age fairly well. Right. So what are some of the things this letter talks about? Maybe that's the way to do this. Instead of trying to follow the thread, let's just talk about some of what's in this letter for your, your edification. Um, science versus human rights, right? He doubts really human rights here, I think. Personally, I feel more irritated by a challenge to the accepted scientific theory than I do by an act of so-called evil and injustice among mankind. Although I'll never allow my irritation to hamper my acceptance of the new theory as soon as positive evidence warrants. Um, so he actually says he's more offended by assaults on science than on than human rights violations. Kind of a weird thing to say. Um, but there it is. Um, obviously, I think human rights is, is totally scientific. <laughs> uh, it's part of the Enlightenment. The, you know, it, it's not scientific in the sense it's like it fits the Darwinian worldview. Obviously, we are of nature, but but for reason, but as anthropology, as other sciences prove, human beings are cooperative and we succeed best when we're, when we're cooperative and work together. Anyway, this isn't about me. It's about Lovecraft. Oh, so much in here. Uh, a lot on materialism. A lot on Lovecraft's kind of political conservatism. Um, he writes, for instance, advancing the question of collective conduct as involved in problems with government, social organization, social organization, etc. I fully see your side of the matter. I would be the last person in the world to advocate any course of civic or economic policy which might tend towards the destruction of the existing culture. In accordance with this attitude, I'm distinctly opposed to visibly arrogant and arbitrary extremes of government. But this is because I, have a, because I wish the safety of the artist and intellectual civilization to be secure, not because I have any sympathy with the coarse-grained herd that would menace the civilization if not placated by sops. Ultimately, his goal is a political system that serves art the best. And, and I think that's, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Lovecraft. It's like, that's because you're an artist. <laughs> that's why you're saying that. You, you got to look beyond your own nose sometimes. And and I also, I, I kind of hold with... Uh, with Walt Wilde, that socialism is a better foundation for art than capitalism. I mean, it, and I, why are people, why are artists more free under capitalism than socialism? If you have to serve the market, you're not. If you have to serve the state or the market, you're both serving some other master for your art. Anyways, what else do we got here? A lot on the masses and democracy. A lot on. It's kind of advocacy of some kind of aristocracy. Um, so he kind of thinks uh, democracy as inferior to some sort of aristocracy. He thinks the vote is useful, useless. He, he basically supports disen, disenfran, disenfranchisement. Of course, he's writing at a time that Jim Crow is already fairly well established in the South, but still relatively new. And it's still and it's increasingly a topic of conversation in the United States. Um, a lot here also on race, on immigration, uh, where we kind of get these old greatest hits about race and civilization. He writes, for instance, um, 
I don't say I'm for any more circuitous measure, circuitous measure, measure, which will accomplish anything of the same thing. My reason is plain and concrete that it's oppressively unpleasant to live in a country where the customs, folkways, literary and artistic tone and governmental forms are markedly unlike those natural to one's own race and civilization. So whatever nuance he came across when thinking about like the Celtic influence on Anglo-Saxon civilization, in this letter he, he kind of comes back to his more extreme position, I think. Uh, even talking about things in terms of physical features and, and, and race. Um, Obviously, he sees the end of Roman art with the introduction of these barbarian influences and, and all that. And whenever he talks about Rome, he can't think about the current state of Western civilization. So that leads him to the decline of the West argument. And I think he even mentions the decline of the West by name, perhaps. Uh, if not by name, it's there subtly there. You know, the fall of Rome and the, fall, the contemporary fall of the West. Lovecraft puts these together in his mind all the time. Uh, this is followed by a discussion of art, a fairly lengthy conversation on his, his preferences for art, his aesthetic beliefs and all that. Things we've seen before in some of his other letters. But he's able to swing it back to the issue of race. Now we're over halfway through this letter. I've been skipping a lot of details. It is. It's really, really long. But he kind of swings back to the question of race and here does it with art. Uh, looking at art kind of as a racial thing. Uh, linkage with a long continuous history of a race is a thing with a genuine poetical value in itself. And the joy we take in even the ugliest and most grotesque of traditional objects is not a false one. It's not directly aesthetic, that is, it does not proceed from the decorative beauty of line and the objects themselves, but is nonetheless truly aesthetic in an indirect way. Then he finally gets back into machine culture. And all this kind of machine culture is everything's tied to it in some way. Like the movement of people, immigration, uh, modernist art. A lot of the things that he's grumbling about and upset about tie in some way in his mind to machine culture. So I agree that Lovecraft's race is something that really needs to be taken seriously and dissected and analyzed. I, I don't, I'm not a believer that we should cancel Lovecraft uh, because of his racial views. However, I, I don't think like purging him or, or denying his significance or saying people who shouldn't read him anymore. I, I'm not for that, but I'm also not one who wants to ignore race. I, I think I'm interested in grappling with it because I'm interested in the history of racial thinking, I guess. Maybe that's why I, I feel that way. Just because I, I like reading books about the history of race, and I'm interested in African American history, and I'm interested in the, you know, how these ideas developed. I'm interested in America and the story of America, and and love cross ideas are, are part of America, right? But here's what I want to say: it's the tendency to reduce Lovecraft to race, and maybe this this podcast is faulting for doing that. I hope I'm not. I hope I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking broadly at the question and contributing more than just a, a dissection of, of the racial politics of Lovecraft here. But much more on the forefront of Lovecraft's paranoia was machine culture, what he calls machine culture. Um, that's the real threat, and that's the, it's inevitable. It's not like something that can be struggled against, but it's the way the world's going. 
And his political conservatism, his views on literary modernism, his views on immigration, all tied to his broader fear of, of machine culture. Right? So a lot of the second half of this letter gets into, into this. Right? He even talks like, he talks about language and race and assimilation of cultures and, and how is that even possible in, in an era that doesn't have a culture anymore? It's, this is, there's a lot going on in this letter, trust me. So maybe I, I almost should just say you should read it and, and go into and read all the Harris letters because they're all like wild. Um, and great introductions to Lovecraft's philosophy. Um, he even talks about like leisure culture, something that I'm personally interested in is what automation is going to mean for leisure. He said, granted that the machine victim has leisure, what is he going to do with it? What memories and experience has he to form a background to give significance to anything he can do? End quote. Now, he's being really classist here. He's saying, okay, the machine age, machine, the machine creates leisure time for our poor worker, but our worker is basically too stupid to do much with this and we won't know what to do. So it's a horrible point of view to have. Um, but the fact that he's predicting something we're talking about increasingly, which is automation. And what is automation going to mean for the future of work? And, and he's worried because he doesn't think most people can really handle that. Uh, he talks, then he gets a lot into democracy and talks about what the, like the religion for the masses. And he talks about the failures of democracy in terms of, what is it here? He calls democracy a destroyer of, of culture and other things. So, um, anyways, a lot going on in this very, very long and fascinating letter. Um, so long I didn't even take systematic notes because it would have been like a few pages. I just took marginal notes and, and I just gave you some of the highlights. Read it. Again, February 25th to March 1st, 1929 is, is lo how long it took Lovecraft to write it. Uh, a great introduction into his modern, his thoughts on modernism, modernity in general. All right, next we have a letter to Elizabeth uh, Tolbridge. Uh, not nearly as long, but still lengthy. Eight, seven, eight pages. Um, dated March 8th, 1929. Uh, now, this is a famous uh, letter because this is the quote. This is where Lovecraft says, oh, I've been copying Poe and Dunsany, but I don't have a Lovecraft piece. You've probably heard this quote before if you know anything about uh, Lovecraft. Because a lot of people like to put Lovecraft right in like the different periods, the Poe period, the Dunsany period, and then like the authentic Lovecraft period. That comes from this quote. He says, thus was formed a habit of imitativeness, which I never, which I can never wholly shake off. Even when I break away, it's generally only through imitating something else. There are my Poe pieces and my Dunsany pieces, but alas, where are my Lovecraft pieces? Only in some of my more realistic fictional prose do I show any signs of developing at this late date a style of my own. End quote. Now we know Lovecraft will develop that style of his own in stories like At the Mountains of Madness and Shadow of Time, I think. Um, but that's important. So that's why this letter is here, obviously. Um, but he also then kind of turns it around and starts to ask the question, whose fiction compares to Lovecraft's instead of whose fiction is Lovecraft copying? Like, whose fiction compares to Lovecraft? Uh, and he goes on a little bit about Dunsany and some of his works. Now, where this gets kind of wild is about halfway through the letter, he starts to go on about the Druids and Rome. And I love this stuff. 
as you probably know, I've been really interested in how uh, traditions about druids or witchcraft or things uh, survived or didn't survive, but how, especially how Lovecraft feels about their survival. Lovecraft seems to think that like the witches really survived. And he got this from that book Murray wrote, The Witch Cults of Northern Europe. And here he's talking about the Druids. And the, I mean, the, the suppression of the Druids, of all the religions in the Roman Empire, you know, other places they just incorporated, like they took in the Greek gods and they, they, you know, they didn't do this to the Norse as far as I know. Well, I guess they, were, they didn't really interact with the Norse culture in the, way, in the same way. But uh, the Druids in England and France, modern day England and France, were repressed by the Romans, right? Massacred and wiped out. And why? What was it the Druids were doing? That's, that's my question. That's that's really my question. Are they were they more dangerous than we we think? Um, here, the Druids are indeed a fascinating subject, meriting a story all their own. This is Lovecraft's writing, extending back before Rome times. They were, as you doubtless know, inexorably opposed to Rome rule and the instigating influence of all Celtic revolts against Rome. On this account, the Emperor Claudius ordered them all suppressed, especially in Britain which was, rather than Gaul, their headquarters. The Druids are far more mystical and cosmic than the adherents of either the Greco-Romans or Teutonic religion. I mean, this is really awesome stuff here. And then he talks about like how Arthur Macon kind of digs into this Druid traditions and Druid's rituals. Um, he even talks about, in this letter, how maybe there were early, quote-unquote, early mongoloids in Europe, and maybe that ties to witchcraft, even. Uh, he says, Western Europe was undoubtedly inhabited by a squat mongoloid race whose last living vestiges are the Laps. This is a race which bequests the hideous witch cult to posterity. So again, he seems to think these witch cults are real, and not just fantasies of, of not just drawing from the imagination of the ruling class. Um, it's probably a little bit of both, but there's really something going on here about Lovecraft's views about these traditions. And I, I think that's something that really has to be maybe talked about more because it ties so directly to his work, you know, because that's such a common theme in his work is like pr primordial traditions surviving centuries of repression or isolation. Um, it's not just Joseph Kerwin who somehow is able to survive through time. It's, it's, it's like the Cthulhu cult and things like that. Anyways, interesting letter. The next one, uh, March 15th, 1929, also to Elizabeth Tollridge, but much shorter. Basically, it's about uh, the, the gang uh, and, a, and a volume they're kind of working on. Um, the Long Loveman Smith Volumes. I guess uh, some book of collected stories. And he talks about Irish nationalism, right? Because at this time, I think they're they're moving towards the Irish Free State, and and he's he's kind of thinking what impact this will have on on culture in the in Great Britain. Um, yeah, that that might be interesting to think about a little bit more. Let's see what he said here. It will be interesting to see how the Free State will really affect Irish letters. I hope the Gaelic fad won't be carried too far, for English really is the natural tongue of the Hiberian writers. And any reversion to another would snap the main line of tradition, which has produced the greatest poet alive today, Yeats. 
The Irish have a peculiar charm in their use of English that can never be duplicated in their language. Quote. Here he's kind of picking again on Joyce and other modernist Irish writers for trying to revive Gaelic. They still wrote in English, though. I mean, I think, again, Lovecraft's really imagining something that didn't happen. I mean, it wasn't like Gaelic replaced English in Ireland. It's that let's revive this language and maybe someday in the future it can be the foundation for literature, but um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, there's an Irish free state and they're going to stop speaking English overnight. That's, that's obviously not what happened or not, couldn't have happened. Um, all right, next, uh, Wilford Blanche Tallman, March 19, 1929. I'm not going to say much about this because it's just about family history. And that's not too interesting to me. Instead, let's just move on to the next letter, which is to Zelia Brown Reed. Um, this one is dated March 20th, 1929. This is about um, writing. It's about his advice to her to be a writer, essentially. And he talks about hack writing. We know his feelings on hack writing, that it's not good. Uh, you know, he knows what it's like to write for, for, for a job to survive. He knows what it's like to not have income and to need it. So I think he can't totally say hack writing is bad bad it's just not art he doesn't like it um, but he doesn't i mean he admits to to doing this sometimes um problem the ultimate problem is that where's the income for the writer come from um and then how do you be a successful writer well um you can pursue truth and beauty you can be a craftsperson. you can be a you can do your homework you can be scholarly you can be accurate but none of that necessarily pays um, very well. Maybe being a craftsperson is the best way, kind of a craftsman writer is the best way to get paid. Um, but it's not easy. And, and here's why I don't quite understand his hostility to socialism. And I guess it just comes out of his classism, his, his conservatism, whatever, but... Do you really believe when writers are desperate just to like feed themselves and they're selling their works by the word that this is the best just to survive that this is the best way to get great art right if you look historically at some of the great works of art in the time that lovecraft was fascinated with like in the 18th century these were people who were like court writers essentially you know, even back in the Renaissance or even the Romans, or these people were either independently wealthy or they were given some kind of sinecure by the government, right? Now, by the 19th century, this changes and you get people, like even Mozart was a free agent, right? But for much of his career, he was the, the Archbishop of Salzburg's dog, right? Then he went to Vienna and went on his own. Beethoven was maybe the first true, fully emancipated writer who made his made his living tutoring and, and doing concerts and things but uh, in at the time that Lovecraft was so f interested in writers didn't have to worry about where their meal came from right and so I don't get why why would socialism be bad for art I don't understand yes if you're a slave of the state if the state says I want paintings that do this for propaganda yeah that's going to create shitty art we know that but by and large, if, if you have a situation of basic freedom of expression, 
which you don't always have, obviously, in existing socialist states. I'm not claiming they, you did. But if people's material needs are just met, like something like a basic income, I think a basic income, call it socialism if you want, or, or I don't care, something like a basic income would be a boon for art, I think. We would see bands popping up, and yeah, a lot of their music would be trash, but there'd be good stuff too. And we'd see a lot more people writing because they're not having to work at Starbucks for seven bucks an hour. I think there'd be a creative explosion if this happened. That's my view. And, and Lovecraft seems to know the problem. That's my point here about talking about it now in this letter. In this letter to Bishop, he seems to know the problem of, of just how do writers make a living. And I'm saying there's a solution to that. It's called socialism. Okay. Next, we have Clark Ashton Smith, uh, March 22, 1929. This one's all about the witches. This is a short little letter. Um, it doesn't look like it's... I don't know how much it's edited down here. Um, but he talks about the Dunwich Horror um, a little bit. He says, I haven't produced anything. Um, but... This is cool. He says, by the way, that tale earned me a very interesting letter from a curious old lady in Boston, a direct lineal descendant of the Salem witch Mary Eastie, who was hanged in gallows. She hints at strange gifts and traditions handed down in her family and asked me if I had access to any ancient secret witch lore of New England. Wow. Beautiful. Lovecraft got a fan letter from a witch. Wow. I guess... I, she, she's obviously a witch. She, she got this... These secrets were handed down. She wants Lovecraft to give her more. She must have lost a spell book. So she needs Lovecraft to give her one of these spell books. That's gonna, so she can finish her... It's a good thing maybe Lovecraft didn't give her what he knows. Because who knows what would have happened. If he would have... Like, maybe... It's like, it's like Wilbur... Wilbur Watley in the Dunwich Horror. He just needed the one spell from the Necronomicon, right? And he says here, a story of Salem horror based on actual inside dope from a witch-blooded crone would surely be a striking novelty. Wonderful. Great, great, great letter. Great little bit here. The next one, uh, also to Clark Ashton Smith, one he, he where he, signed, he puts, his, puts his name as Clark Ashton, like a god. K-L-A-R-K-S-A-H-T-O-N. This one's dated April 14, 1929. Um, this one, uh, he talks more about the witches in New England, kind of a follow-up about a month later on the witches of New England. Uh, he talks about his dream stories, too. Um, and a dream story he read in Dunsany and things like that. But a little bit here on the ancestry of witches. All right, next, moving on, we got a letter from... Uh, to Elizabeth Tolbridge, uh, April 15th, 1929. Uh, here, it's not very long, it's only three pages, but it's, once again, we see Lovecraft going back to his hatred of New York, which is getting kind of lame at this point, but you know, it never quite goes away, I guess. Uh, especially not in this volume. In volume two, you get it a lot. Later volumes, does you don't hear it quite so much, but it's here. Um, but we also get kind of a summation of his philosophy for Tolbridge. They've been talking for a while, and I guess he, he thought he'd help her out and just kind of uh, give her a nice, uh, a nice summation of what he thinks. All right. Next, uh, Wilfred B 
Blanche Tallman. This is April 15th, 1929. Um, now this is a fun letter because it's all written like in old spelling, in old archaic spelling. Uh, so I think that's why this letter's here really. There's nothing said here. It's kind of personal and about his travels and where he wants to go, but it's written in the old spelling, which is just fun. It's just a nice little, uh, it's just Lovecraft having fun with, with antiquarianism. Next, we have Elizabeth Tolridge again, May 4th, 1929. Uh, this one was written from Richmond, Virginia. And so this is about the architecture of Richmond, as we'd expect. Uh, whenever he goes to these places, he always uh, wants to I'll say a few words about the, about the architecture. Next, uh, Elizabeth Tolbridge again. Uh, this one's back from Providence, May 29th, 1929, but he's back in Providence. And he writes here about the history of Philly, the history of New York, and it's actually a lot of good history here. Uh, going back to like the 18th century and wars with the Indians and stuff. It's kind of a rich letter in that way. It, it's fairly long though, um, but it gets into the, the, like the French Huguenots and New Poults, um, the Dutch migrations into... And what I kind of like about this letter is, you know, for all that Lovecraft rants about immigrants and, and complains about the immigration and its effect on culture, when he looks at American history in the 18th century, he has to admit you get all these different influences from all over the place. Um, and that's just kind of um, fun to see. Uh, he's, not, he's not a bad historian. At least he's, he's aware of the, the reality of the history of the places he lives in and visits. Um, next, uh, Wilfred Blanche Tallman, June 8th, 1929. Really not much to say here except... I mean, it's, it's very personal. He's just talking about, um, like he's actually talking about fan lights and stuff. So just uh, some personal nuance. I, I'm not even sure why this letter is considered very important. Uh, then we have one from James Ferdinand Morton, June 9th, 1929, which also is, seems to be a lot of minutiae here. Stuff about his breakfast, about you know, the, how much he has to spend on food and things like that and milk con condensing. There's a letter later on where he goes on about cheese. So um, there's, and, and how he doesn't like cheese. So that's, that'll be in the next volumes though. Uh, what else? Uh, the next one, June 10th, 1929 to Elizabeth Tolbridge. Now this one deals with like Providence architecture. Um, and it, he talks about his own personal relationship with Providence and New England architecture. He does a little bit with the Virginia and Philly stuff because that's on his mind. But largely he's thinking about like things like Brown University. If you've read the case of Charles Dexter Ward, you sort of know this stuff. It, it's, it's, you're already somewhat aware of that. If you read it carefully anyways, you know, you looked up the names, you looked at the buildings that he talks about in that story. You're aware of some of this stuff. And case of Charles Dexter Ward has already been written by this point. So it's not that he was writing this as he wrote this letter. He already knows this. He knows the stuff like the back of his hand, obviously. Uh, he talks about like th th a lot of different buildings. And, and then he gets into how it kind of intersects with his own work, like the Shunned House, which is set in Providence, of course. Um, but that's one of his two stories really set in, two major stories set in Providence. Um, 
So that's good stuff. That's interesting stuff. Uh, he then he moves on to go on to to talk about some of the cosmic horror and civilization and things like that. Topics he always likes to come back to. Um, he writes, for instance, these local human feelings, perspectives, preferences, wishes, and aspirations are quite clearly and adequately accounted for by modern psychology, materially accounted for in the way in which proves them absolutely valueless and supremely ir irrelevant in the task of interpreting the phenomenon around us. Everything that exists or happens exists or happens because the balance of forces in the cosmic pattern make it inevitable. Whatever ethical or preferential qualities we seem to see in anything are sheer fictions of our mind and emotions, fictions based on the body of race legendary originated when mankind was unable to conceive of external natures apart from the anthropomorphic and anthropocentric. So once again, we see this argument being made that the reason he's so obsessed with race is he sees modern science and the modern understanding of the world. It's led to the death of God. It's killed. It, it's, it's, but more importantly, it's created the, an acknowledgement of the reality that we are alone in the universe and kind of doomed because of that. We can't know the universe. We're insignificant within it. So what do we do? What do we grasp onto? We can't face that. We can't, we can't look into the abyss without, without losing our sanity, right? So what do we hold on to? Well, we can only hold on to our, our cultures and traditions. And yeah, he associates those with race, and he shouldn't have done that. But that's his argument, right? And I think it's pretty clear and unchanging throughout his work. He evolves on some things, but this is pretty steady throughout his all the letters I've read of his. Um, so this letter, although it starts with architecture, kind of veers off into this question of cosmic horror and its relationship with the race. It talks a little bit about the Labour Party winning, I guess, in England. And uh, just one last one. This is actually the 21st letter I'll look at in this episode, but just to be complete, finish them off. Uh, June 16th, 1929 to August Derleth. And in this letter, he talks about um, August Derleth returning to Saw City. That's, uh, I think that's the location where San County Almanac takes place. So I'm beginning to look at the Aldo Leopold works for the Li Library of America. And I'm going to be doing that in my mainline series. So it's kind of uh, providence, I guess, that I'm thinking about Wisconsin as we end this book of Lovecraft's letters. Um, but... It's a nice little coda to this where he talks about walking in the woods uh, with August Derleth. So that's it. We've done it. We've gone through the second volume of the Selected Letters of Lovecraft one at a time uh, over the course of nine episodes. I hope you weren't too bored. I hope this series can be useful to you if you want to mine these letters uh, or if you just want to kind of follow his philosophy as it evolves through the letters. What's up next? Well, as I said, we're going to look at supernatural horror and literature next. At least one episode, probably several episodes. i got to print it out and read it. Uh, but uh, probably a week from now, I'm going to start giving my thoughts on it. Might be a couple, may, might be two or three episodes. Maybe one where I talk about it, like the introduction, and then one where I get into the details. There's a lot in it. But the question is, how deep do we need to get into all these different letters or, or all these different... Uh, stories that he talks about. It's really a well-researched article. Then uh, 
then we'll jump in, I think, to the poems. That's that's the plan. Um, so we'll do that for a while and then get back to stories, beginning with... Uh, I'm not even sure where we left off. We left off with the shunned house, right? So... So maybe Horror at Red Hook, Call of Cthulhu. I don't know the exact order, but those stories will be coming up next. Then we'll do some revisions, and, and we'll see where we're at. Um, anyways, as always, thanks for listening. If you have uh, any advice on how to deal with the letters, uh, me in the next series, where I look at select the letters volume three or four, let me know. Maybe go at it more thematically. Maybe try a different approach. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested in your point of view. So anyways, I, I look forward to talking about supernatural horror and literature with you. So it's Lovecraft's great contribution to the scholarship of, of horror literature and worth reading. I think it, it holds up in many ways. So anyways, thanks as always for listening. Thanks for supporting this podcast. Uh, share it around. Let other Lovecraft fans uh, that you might know of uh, know about this, this work and this project I'm engaged in. See you next time. Uh, thanks for listening.